So uh, everyone loves Maastrichtian dinosaurs. Gonna, what you, now? You're gonna have to start that one again. Is it is it even worth carrying on with this? Should we just stop it there and release it? Ready? <coughs> right. Hello <laughs> and welcome to episode 76 of world famous Tetrapod Cats. I'm using that term now because maybe I realised I because I got the joke. <laughs> it's funnier than Tetrapod Cats. Uh, I'm the Alabama Leprechaun and I uh, podcast with. Ah. <laughs> 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 oh my god. Let me think about this. Pigsy the monkey. <laughs> Pigsy the <Okay>. monkey. <laughs> and in today's episode, uh, so um, w- there's one thing we're not going to talk about, and that is. G. No, entire, um, <laughs> the whole thing. We're not going to talk about the whole thing, what's going on. Okay. Because we've just done it. <laughs> Instead, we're gonna we're gonna pretend that things are normal. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Let's, okay. Things 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 are normal. It's great. Birds yeah. singing. Minimal traffic. Yeah. No no minimal pollution from planes flying overhead, mm-hmm. as we were just discussing. Uh, so we've got some news from the world of news, and many other things on the agenda. So rather than list them off, which I was just gonna do, which is a bit stupid, we'll start talking about them. So. News in the world of news jingle. Okay. Yeah? News for the world of news. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I've got three things on the list. Yep. I'm going to go all through briefly. So we are re-implementing the two-minute rule. <laughs> um... And there's a bit of overlap between news from the world of news and um, oh god, there's meant to be a load of fu. There's meant to be a load of follow-up stuff. I, I've I've not recorded what that is though, so I've, to- I've totally forgotten it. Apologies oh, well. to people oh, who well. thought we. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, we'll we'll add it in later. Um, yeah. Okay, news. Um, so the phylogenetic history and um, geologic like timing of events in the evolutionary history of birds that was a bit of a jumbled mess but I think you know what I'm saying yeah is always been of great interest and uh, you know so, some things are get a lot of coverage and um, by the way we're trying to get back into the swing of doing things regularly so there's, there's news <laughs> items from like two two years two oh, that I've wanted to cover over the last two years but um, anyway yeah like Asterionis the wonder chicken we're going to talk about that very briefly. This was uh, led by Daniel Field, published in Nature, I believe. I'm looking at Albert Chen's very nice blog article. Yeah, uh, Nature, Lake Cretaceous Neonathene from Europe illuminates the origins of crowned birds. So um, it's generally thought among those interested in the evolution of birds that the crown birds, modern birds, the neonathenes, they probably did originate in the uh, very end of the late Cretaceous, um, but 
there's some controversy as to how many lineages were present and w whether fossils actually document um, this Neolithene origin and early diversification in the late Cretaceous and what bird lineages the late Cretaceous alleged Neolithene fossils belong to because a lot of the fossils are pretty poor and have been the subject of many different kind of many interpretations I'm talking for way too long on this mm -hmm. basically it's from the Maastrichtian of is it Belgium I think it's Belgium um, they found this like block with a a small like block of rock with it. so I've just seen I've just seen Albert's uh, caption to one of the figures it's got a it's got a swear in it it's two swears in it very very naughty um yeah this small chunk of rock right it's about so i don't know it's eight nine centimeters long and it's got a bird bone in it and they're like oh wow there's a bird bone in it. it's really cool and they scanned it and just underneath the surface there was a complete skull of mm -hmm. this bird um and asterionis so very well represented as late cretaceous birds go um it proves to be not just a neonathene but a member of galloansery the uh the anseriform plus galliform clade and um so it's a beach coma type shorebird thing did yeah. you you know i don't mean shorebird as in a member of caradriforms but um yeah they find it to be a stem member of galloansery i believe and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nature paper, Asterionis, the wonder chicken, and check out um, Albert's very nice uh, article on his Albertanicus blog, and I've spoken for way more than two minutes on that, so that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of would like to have covered that on Tetsu. Huh. <laughs> but funny thing is I could have done because Albert like you know, sort of you know, knew about it but I, I couldn't because I just couldn't I couldn't fit it in alright that is that um Dinio Bellator the, it's a Velociraptorine Dromaeosaur from the uh, I think it's the Ojo Alamo formation of New Mexico and um it's always nice to have a new Maastrichtian Dromaeosaur so it's from the very last part of the uh, uh, Cretaceous, the fossil's not great. It's various like bits and pieces. There's like a partial humerus, partial ulna, I think. Bit of a sickle claw, uh, one or two vertebrae. Yeah, and they reckon it's a Velociraptorine type animal. So a Velociraptorine from the Maastrichtian of New Mexico. Cool. Um, the papers papers kind of a little odd in that they produce a skeletal reconstruction or they, I think, have modified like a Scott Hartman one and then they suck some feathers on it <laughs> and they did that thing where they, they've got like, imagine a, imagine a outline of a dinosaur of a dromaeosaur without any feathers on it and then put like six feathers on it like, let's put some like here <laughs> yeah. like that, yeah, yeah. and then yeah. let's put some on the back of the head yeah. because it's a crazy chicken time dinosaur <laughs> yeah, they mm. Yeah, <laughs> but the, the, that's not reflected in some very nice artwork that's appeared online. So Dinia Blato. And the third thing I want to talk about, this is brand new. Okay, so I think we've discussed before on the podcast, and I've certainly written about it at Tetsu, the whole phenomenon in biogeography of rafting. So you have this, you have these cases where there are, let's say, there are animals on South America 
and they have no close relatives in the Americas at all. They are deeply nested within a group that's otherwise African. So excluding the ancient aliens hypothesis, mm. which is a huge crock hit. Mm. Oh, thank you. And excluding teleportation, the only explanation is that the animals crossed an ocean. And we actually have good reasons for thinking that this is a real thing because in you know in modern times we have seen cases where animals have crossed large expanses of ocean by rafting. I don't like and I've said this on Tetrapod Zoology, maybe I've said it on the podcast, I don't remember. I don't like the term rafting because people imagine that animals fashion a small uh, <laughs> <laughs> vessel by <laughs> lashing some logs together um, or they they cling to a large floating tree trunk people tend to think either of those things I reckon <laughs> animals fashion a, fashion a vessel or I don't, I, I don't know if anyone actually does think that but in actual in actual fact these rafts are like, more like sort of floating islands huge tangled masses of vegetation that are swept out of river mouths and whatnot and they can have animals on them and uh, this explains how um, platyrine monkeys and caviomorph rodents got to the Americas from mm-hmm. Africa and there's loads of other cases in other groups of animals as well iguanian lizards in particular are a really fascinating example of this well so it's bad enough that primates did it once they rafted from Africa to South America published in Science on the 10th of April which is today 2020 year of our lord um Eric Seifert and colleagues, a parapithecid stem anthropoid of African origin in the Paleogene of South America. So from the um, um, the Paleogene of Peru, dating to about 35, 32 million years ago, which is the Eocene-Legocene boundary, they report a new taxon of um, parapithecid. There's an, a group of entirely African um, primates did I say from Peru, from mm. Amazonian Peru. This It's only known from teeth, but they're good enough for us to be pretty confident this is a parapithecid, and they call it Ucayalipithecus. Ucayalipithecus. So, um, and parapithecids, although they're outside, they're outside the clade that includes anthropoids, so that's monkeys and apes, they're stem anthropoids, there's no reason for thinking that they're ancestral to platyrines, the South American monkeys, well the American monkeys because they're in Central and Southern North America as well, whatever Um, so this must be an independent invasion of the Americas by an African primate group Mm. too much rafting too much rafting two rafting events within Mm. uh, the total anthropoid clade and here is your obvious and inevitable explanation for Bigfoot so the uh, those those uh, air quotes experts that's a bit mean sorry so those people who have um, actually said that Bigfoot is wait no, wait 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 a second they never said it was a parapithecid they always said it was a platyrine yeah there's a couple of um oh by the way I'm saying platyrine today but you can also say platyrine I don't know <laughs> I've never learned how to talk proper <laughs> um. Yeah, there's there's some people that have actually proposed that Bigfoot is a giant New World primate. 
like a giant howler monkey or something. Mm-hmm. But but that, that that wouldn't that wouldn't wash with this. Sorry, that was a stupid tangent. Um, so that is news from the world of news. And there, and there could be many many other things. There's loads of other things that have come up. Yeah, it's been some time since the last podcast. Yes, yeah. so um, I think that yeah, three things is enough. All right, so news from the world of Darren and John. I normally would clink the Pekingese dog, but it's packed because all my stuff is packed at the moment. It's a long yeah. story there. I was moving. Now I'm not. Um, any news from the world of John? John? Oh, yeah, yeah. But how about you go with your news first? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, a, uh, a long-running project, uh, at least, well, definitely two, possibly three years of work, uh, has all been wasted because no it hasn't been wasted okay so i've been a guest curator for the national maritime museum falmouth in cornwall uk for the past couple of years and i've been working together with curatorial staff at the national maritime museum falmouth and the reason you say national maritime museum falmouth is because the national maritime museum is greenwich london and then there's this national maritime museum west which is also the national maritime museum but you have to kind of you know make out that it's this west of england Cornish branch, whatever. Um, brilliant museum. I like Falmouth as well, great town. Anyway, um, yeah, I've been working together on this exhibition, Monsters of the Deep, uh, a big, very, you know, lavish uh, thing about sea monsters. And um, I mean, I'll talk about it for hours. I won't do that today because obviously what happened is put it in place, years of work, you know, bringing in all this stuff. You, you name something to do with sea monsters and we've got it in there we talk about we start from like uh, the it's, it's based on the European perspective on sea monsters make that clear because obviously you know there's so much you can say globally we don't do that just couldn't um, we talk about like what did medieval people think about sea monsters and why then we talk about like once people in the late 1800s actually started doing proper scientific work on the oceans it mostly became clear that the sea monsters weren't really real. So then you have like the scientific, the story of the scientific, our scientific discovery of the oceans, and the discovery of loads and loads of new species, which obviously continues up to the present. But then you have this parallel strand, whereby kicking off in, you know, mostly in the mid 20th century, cryptozoologists start resurrecting the medieval stuff as if no it's actually legit the sea monsters are real and they are awaiting discovery and um yeah we sort of do both of those stories in in parallel which people tend not to do because they tend not to they tend to say well people used to believe in sea monsters but they don't anymore no that's not true there's still loads of people that believe in sea monsters and there's this huge literature that's kind of i kind of like the idea and we've probably covered this on the podcast before i like this idea of talking about cryptozoology as um, para science, para as in you know running alongside the thing and not being absorbed into it. So I do think it's true that some cryptozoology is pseudoscience. I do think it's true that a lot of stuff that you would call cryptozoology actually is legitimate science, and it's not really fair to call it pseudoscience. But I think mostly it's para science. It's people using scientific principles and scientific arguments to come up with like some parallel strand of things that's not working by the same rules as mainstream science um 
the exhibition, like I said, I could talk lots more about the actual contents of it and everything, but it was due to open on something like the 20th of March. Mm-hmm. And obviously, myself and my family, we'd like, you know, booked time, time off, you know, got kids off school and college and, you know, booked time off work and we're actually all going to go down there and, you know, stay in a little house in some village near Falmouth and, you know, attend the, the official opening and everything. But current events mean that everything was cancelled and it hasn't opened. The museum is obviously closed and will be for the foreseeable, you know, for months. And there was no point in us going down there. As it happens, we did go down there anyway and just sat in the house all the time, which was fine because it still felt like a, I don't know, a break. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, so if and when, no, not if, when things, like, reopen, then I'll be, you know, there'll still be an official opening. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll talk about it, write about it, share loads of pictures and videos because I'm pretty, pretty flipping happy with uh, what we've done. Hmm. I'll talk about it more. Well, it'll line. be good when it does open. People will appreciate it even more. <laughs> yeah. Well, already the um, all of the events associated with its opening were like stuffed full of bookings. It's uh, and you can't move in Falmouth for adverts about it. They've really gone to town on uh, promoting Monsters of the Deep. So Monsters of the Deep, the the Darren Nash um, Sea Monster Exhibition. Um, yeah, those of you who are familiar with my what I've said about you know sea monsters, my writings on it and stuff, you'll be happy to see a lot of those things treated fairly in the exhibition. Um, two more things, real briefly. So I'm always doing technical research in the background. I don't know why it doesn't doesn't do me any good. It's like what a waste of my time, but I still feel compelled to do it. Um, a couple of months ago, myself together with Carrie Woodruff and Jamie Dunning published a technical paper in historical biology um, about the possibility of what's called photoluminescence, although there's some ambiguity about whether that's the right term, the possibility of photoluminescence in extinct archosaurs. Um, So could dinosaurs and pterosaurs have been photoluminescent? Could they actually have used UV-emitting structures to enhance their visual displays. Um, I've written about this at Tetrapod Zoology. Uh, The paper is um, Woodruff et al. Photoluminescent visual displays, an additional function of integumentary structures in extinct archosaurs. And I've illegally placed a PDF on the internet, which (laughs) you can find. So get this right. Um, I don't want to diss this journal in particular, and I don't want to diss you know any particular journal. It's not about particular journals, but technical journals, technical publications. They give you a PDF and they say, "Here's your free PDF. You can share 50 copies of it, but no more." <laughs> and it's like, uh, what? No? How does what? Seriously? You're meant to dole out 50 copies and then stop? I'm not quite sure how that's supposed to work. And and I. Are you meant to keep a tally of like what's a piece how how do you limit the numbers of a piece of digital information that you can put online or send to people? I also love the idea of here's a free piece of your work 
Like, that on. is, yeah, that is the whole the whole issue there. Uh, we we could we could talk about this, but we won't. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So um, now I've always been a bit confused, and I evidently was when I wrote the Tetrapodology article about the fact that okay, there are loads of vertebrates that can see into the UV part of the spectrum, mm-hmm. and there are loads of organisms, including tetrapods and other vertebrates that if you shine um, you know they seem to emit UV light if you you know shine light to them in the dark and stuff Mm -hmm. but it turns out that the fact that they emit UV they're emitting it within the part of the spectrum that's visible to us they're not only emitting it in like the UV part of the spectrum to anyone who knows anything about the science of vision it'll be obvious already that I don't know what I'm talking about because this is (laughs) Yeah, I'm, 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 I really struggle with this. Really struggle with this. Um, and there, it, it turns out that the take that journalists always focus on, which is, oh my god, these chameleons glowed in the dark, or oh my god, these birds could glow in the dark because they're, you know, they're UV emitting bills or whatever. Turns out that take is almost certainly wrong. Um, you have to have very unusual conditions for the. Um, UV to be emitted within the vis- visible part of the spectrum, which is why a lot of these photos show the animals in like pitch blackness and super illuminated under blue light, in order to shine enough light at them to get the UV to be visible. You have to use quantities of UV light that don't exist in nature. <laughs> you have to shine these like bright UV torches at them or whatever. So um, it may be that any claims of these structures emanating um, unusual quantities of, of light it may be that all of them are bogus and that the um, the um, that it, it may it may just be an incidental consequence of the structures of the you know the materials that the structures are made from it may be that you know we know that bones and teeth um, emit additional quantities of visual you know, light in the in the spectrum visible to us when more uv is directed at them it doesn't necessarily mean that that is used in signaling mm. let alone that it's had an impact in like you know evolution so uh so i tweaked the article a bit it doesn't it doesn't ruin the uh the main take of our article our article is a uh you know a speculative like should we be thinking about this? Is this a thing worth talking about? Which yeah. uh, I think's I think's fair enough. I think there's a place for stuff like that. But um, not that many people have really gone to town on showing like day glow disco dinosaurs like emitting <laughs> blues and purples in the darkness. No, there's only been a few of that. A few pictures that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah, and then also news from the world of. Darren and John, we are having the earliest discussions about Tetsuko 2020. Um, loads of conferences and meetings obviously have been cancelled outright or have been delayed until later in the year or to 2021. Loads of things I was supposed to be going to uh, from now to the end of, well, to, to, to the autumn actually, are, up, are currently up in the air. So I can't say that we're committed to Tetsuko happening at any particular time. But we are talking about possibly having it in December um, somewhere in central London again and we will have more news on that 
at some point? Yeah, I mean, it, obviously it's really difficult because nobody knows when, <clears throat> what things will be possible at what stages, so, and we won't know when we might know either, um, so, mm. um, yep. so we've decided to, yeah, try to go ahead with it this year, but push it to as late as possible a date to make it more likely to happen this year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> hopefully it can go ahead. I suspect that we're, that we will be able to go ahead with some sort of conference, but I do worry about international travel. So, you know, lots of people come from Europe and some from, even from America to come to Tetsukon, and I do worry that those people won't be able to come. But, you know, hopefully we can work out something if that looks like it's going to be the case. I would al I've always wanted to do something a bit virtual with Tetsukon. Maybe we can have a look at that sort of thing. There's lots of call for that. Lots yep. of people wanting, like, yeah. Obviously, Tetsukon is run on a bit of sho uh, shoestring, and um, mm. <laughs> setting up some sort of virtual thing is a bit difficult. But this year, we might have some extra um, extra ability to do that. We'll mm. see. Okay. Do you use Zoom? Um, <laughs> Sigh. Yeah. No. Zoom... Zoom, obviously, if you read the tech press, has a terrible reputation for all mm. its privacy and security. It's like, just nightmare, really. It's just a terrible piece of software. But it does things that other things don't do, and it's free. So yeah. what else are you yeah. going to do? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm in, like, two or three or four Zoom meetings every single day. It's like it's now the default thing that everyone everyone's using. Yeah. And it does appear to be quicker and easier than uh, things like Skype for like big numbers of people. So uh, yeah, I've been using it all the time. I like the little cartoon that shows um, uh, Freddy from Scooby Doo going up to a, a ghost that's labelled COVID nineteen, and he says, "Let's see who is behind this," and it pulls off the mask <laughs> and it zoom underneath. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> it was zoom all along. <clears throat> so that's news from the world of Darren. What's news from the world of John then, John? Nothing. <laughs> We're not allowed to talk about the event, so... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not very interesting. No. Um, I mean, I'm just doing what I always do. Just painting. Doing what you always do. Painting all day, most days. Hating? Painting. Oh, painting. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's really boring. Right. <laughs> There's nothing yeah. to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me show you something that I'm working on. Okay. See if you can see that. Although this is the the version without all the animals composited. Yeah, I've been seeing you tweet about this. Uh, Colouring yeah. good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got... Oh, my God. I've got so much stuff to, that involves writing that I could just do that and nothing else. Obviously, books and technical papers and whatnot. But um, I figure that at least sometimes when I'm sat in front of a computer, I need to therapeutically scribble away while listening to a podcast or whatever um, and uh, so I thought why not actually try and get through some more of this colouring book and so far I've finished one scene this is another one I'm working on and do you want to describe what you think's going on there? It's a bit blurry but it looks uh. like some theropods on the right are looking at I can't tell what that is okay that's two reclining slash sleeping gigantic as darkids in the middle <laughs> in the middle of the scene, 
and then because they are oh I see yeah I can't really see yeah. that no, oh, okay, yeah, I see yeah. a very weak outline <clears throat> oh, yeah. alright yeah well, that's the pro. That's the, the first draft and then obviously the idea is because they're just resting then there's like other animals sort of around them that are not paying them too much attention because all of their you know they're clearly not hunting and stuff so that's another stupid thing I've started oh god Taking you know I made a whole colouring book I do, and that's why I thought I'd tease you with those pictures. Mm. Yeah, where where is your colouring book? Ah, it's for patrons. So on Patreon, if you are, if you're a patron of me, you get the colouring book for free. Well, you finished the whole thing. Finished the whole thing, yeah. And why haven't you published it? Because I made it a Patreon exclusive. Oh wow! Yeah. Where are you on the internet for Patreon? Patreon.com forward slash John Conway. There you go. So go there if you want some colouring book dinosaurs um yeah and my one i'm releasing that on my patreon as well but i do intend to actually publish it as a physical bookie book which Mm. is something i haven't got to yet um okay the this feels weird to do it in this kind of like structured structured way (laughs) do you want to go back to chaos reigns i mean it worked fairly (laughs) well actually last time we did it it was fun (laughs) <laughs> what? Um, what's new at Tet Zoo? Although this one is my favourite jingle. Okay, insert jingle. Right, you're good. Uh, what's new at Tet Zoo? <laughs> the section of the show called uh, What's New at Tet Zoo? <laughs> <laughs> Do you read the internet blog called Tetrapod Zoology? No. No. Um, okay, so, and this is kind of pointless to anyone who does. I don't know. Why do we do this? Why do we do any of this stuff? Um, so, f- three recent things. I said and this, this always feels weird because it kind of overlaps with the newsy stuff. Did you follow John Akula Dantavas? I did not. Oh, well. <laughs> well, well, well. Do you know anything about it? Oh, wait. Is this the little amber thing? Yeah, yeah the little yeah. amber thing. Yeah, I did follow that. Yeah, yeah. wow. Okay, yeah. so... Um, uh, apologies. Do I need to say any of this? It feels weird to people that know it. Some of you will be familiar with this, but if you haven't, in Nature, um, early March, uh, I'm going to say the first week of March, a paper was published in which Jing Leader and colleagues reported a remarkably tiny, complete skull of a Cretaceous bird from Burmese amber. They're saying, oh my god, this shows that in the Cretaceous, in tropical eastern Asia, you know, this 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 Burmese amber is from uh, unlike virtually anything else in the Mesozoic fossil record, it does appear to be from like I understand it's from a rock a rainforest environment, so it's sampling a habitat we don't have, you know, represented elsewhere in the fossil record um, for the Cretaceous. They say that they found this tiny, tiny little bird the size of a hummingbird very strangely they don't provide anywhere in the paper or in the supplementary data they don't provide any data on the actual length of the skull nor do they come up with a size estimate for the for the thing which i thought was weird they provided a um they provided a length for the part of the skull that didn't include the rostrum because their argument was that they wanted to say that this bird is like the size of the smallest hummingbirds but of course hummingbirds are weird because of the super long bill which is really variable you know even within a genus they're saying they didn't want to count that so they found out a way of calculating well they calculated i think they call it the post rostral skull length and they're saying that their animal aculodentavus is like smaller in post rostral skull length than a, than like the smallest 
Charles hummingbirds, like the bee, like a bee hummingbird. Um, if you and they also said that this they 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 chucked this thing, Cudentavus, into a phylogenetic analysis. They said that it was a um, an animal only like one or two steps on the cladogram closer to crown birds than is Archaeopteryx. So it's of the section of the tree that includes long-tailed early Cretaceous uh, birds like um, the Yeholornithids, which are this kind of like crow-sized long-tailed omnivorous group. Um, so using that as a kind of ballpark for what Achilles might have looked like as a whole might have been proportioned, like I did like a crappy little skeletal reconstruction and worked out that um, excluding feathering, it would have been something like you know nine centimeters long in total so a tiny little thing and wow big deal it's like um, i was really excited by this because if you're saying there are these tiny tiny little um like early birds in the early cretaceous so early cretaceous it's like i think it's like mid cretaceous like cenomanian or something actually this amber's really poorly dated um does it mean that we're missing loads of small birds and other small dinosaurs and and we're only going to get them when we get amber and does it also mean there's loads of tiny frogs loads of tiny lizards um uh it could it could mean there's this whole like mini fauna that's super underrepresented as soon as the paper was published um some people who generally know what they're talking about and they know who they are i'm not going to mention their names they said i don't think this is a bird in fact i don't think this is a dinosaur i think this is a lizard and I was like, are you stupid? They published this in Nature, you idiot. There's no way, there's no way. It wouldn't have been checked and checked and checked and checked and checked again. That was my take on it. It's like, no way. Yeah. Uh, yes way. They were totally wrong. It's totally a lizard. <laughs> it's totally a lizard. Um, and, yeah, even there was a an article published in Chinese by a competing group of workers... Um, at the main institution in Beijing, the uh, IVPP, the what is it, the International Vertebrate? Oh God, the the, the yeah. paleontology and paleoanthropology department in uh, Beijing, and um, yeah, these guys said no, it's totally a lizard, and uh, the initial authors then published a response saying yeah, it's totally a lizard. So. Yeah, so Aculodentavus probably is still a thing. It is a distinct taxon and a really interesting one. It's a very unusual animal, but um, it's not a dinosaur after all. <clears throat> now, there's also this significant ethical issue attached to these fossils. So um, I've, I've added some extra stuff about this at, at the Tetsu article saying that, um, yeah, Burmese amber's got loads of like ethical things to do with how it's been used in... That there's 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 um like slave labor basically used to mine it and the money that's made from it is used to fuel genocide and all kinds of stuff like that to the extent where some paleontologists have said that they won't not only will they not publish on anything to do with this amber they won't review articles on amber these Burmese amber fossils they won't comment on it in the press that kind of thing and. Uh, like I say, this is now quite well known. It's becoming more and more well known within the vertebrate paleontological community, and um, you then end up feeling a bit guilty if you have covered it because I didn't know enough about this humanitarian ethical stuff. Um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a pain. I mean, hopefully the you know 
the world will get better and we'll start being able to look at this um, stuff um, mm. <clears throat> in more detail at some point. Yeah. So that's been like throughout throughout like the first half of March, the Akuladin Tarvis saga was a big deal. A lot of people were talking about it, and it's been covered on various blogs that uh, listeners of this podcast will be familiar with. Mark Witten wrote a nice article about the ethical issues, uh, and loads of other people have as well. So, uh, mm. um, okay, so uh, I'm not going to talk about my Wield and Dinosaurs article. Uh, part two of that is still due to come. That's basically just on various things that are like in prep or in press even on, on uh, Wield and Dinosaurs, in particular theropods. Uh, I would like to talk briefly about the late Professor Jenny Clack. Again, this is all covered in my Tetrapod Zoology article. If you've ever heard of the Devonian early tetrapods, Acanthostega and Ichthyostega, and various other animals from that part of um, you know the, the earliest evolutionary history of tetrapods, you will know of Jenny Clack. She uh, led these expeditions to Greenland, and did all this work on showing what um, how unusual in particular Ichthyostega was. So Ichthyostega was, when I was a kid, it was portrayed as like a, a, a chunky salamander mm. that was like making little treks across land. And it was, this is, this is what the tetrapods did. It's like there was a fish with muscular fins and it looked wistfully at the land. I thought, hey, I want some of that. And uh, came onto land maybe because it saw some insects, some nice juicy insects, or maybe because the pools were drying up and, and it was good at trekking from one pool to another. But uh, Clack's work showed that um, Ichthyostega was actually... Uh, it, it could make forays onto land, probably. It was the Godzilla of mudskippers, to quote David Marjanovich um, and uh, Michel Laurent, I think. But, um, um, yeah, it was, it was, like, highly aquatic. And most of these Devonian early tetrapods were highly aquatic, which, which means probably that lots of the key features that we associate with tetrapod hood like uh, elbows wrists and distinct digits and so on those things probably evolved in an aquatic environment as aquatic specializations mm. which is counterintuitive relative to the traditional hypothesis that these are to do with walking on land but Clack and colleagues argued that that these make sense as aquatic adaptations if you live in a cluttered three-dimensional like plant-choked habitat where you've got to clamber around among you know submerged plants and logs and whatnot and indeed we see that in loads of groups of uh fishes loads actinopterygians in particular have evolved uh pseudo digits on many different uh, occasions as there's lots of you know there's lots of models for this in, in living fishes even um and she did loads more work and of course the reason i've written about her uh, as as I implied, is that uh, sadly she uh, is with us no more. Um, she uh, she died on the 26th of March, 2020, following a several years long struggle with cancer. So, um, which is a huge shame. She was a she was a big deal, a brilliant scientist, and a super nice person as well. Yeah. So I felt compelled to write about her. Um. Since then, we've also had the news that uh, uh, Robert Carroll um, has just passed away, and uh, he was another significant character, most known mostly for his work on early reptiles, animals of the Carboniferous and Permian, and um, 
uh, he's he's he was well known or is well known outside just of that specialist area because he wrote one of the three big textbooks on the history of vertebrates he wrote in particular a book i think published in 1988 called vertebrate paleontology and evolution um Alfred Romer, the late great Romer, he wrote uh, a, a big textbook on vertebrates. Carroll wrote the one during the 80s, and more recently, uh, Michael Benton uh, has written one as well, which is now on its like I don't know 13th edition or something. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Carroll's one is uh, yeah, like anyone who knows about reviews of vertebrate history is familiar with it. So um, he was, um, I believe, in his late 70s uh, but um, yeah sad to hear that he's uh, he's with us no more and um, I believe he did actually die as a consequence of COVID-19 yeah um, I've got his book The Rise of Amphibians which is a great, oh, that one. It's a great book for artists it's just full of pictures of skeletons and stuff so yeah if you can get hold of it I'd recommend it yeah <clears throat> I need it. <laughs> You've tried to steal my copy several times. More than several, John. <laughs> you ain't getting yep. it. <laughs> <laughs> try, try saying that. Uh, wait a minute. How can I word that? No, I'm not going to say that. That's, that's, that's particularly distasteful in these. Yeah. <laughs> you say you say you can prize that book from my cold dead fingers. <laughs> and, 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 uh, that's, that's, this is going weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, and finally, uh, what's new at Tet Zoo? By the time this episode of the podcast is out, I probably will have finished the thing that I'm trying to finish now, and it's called Stop Saying That There Are Too Many Sauropod Dinosaurs. <laughs> but Darren, there are too many sauropod dinosaurs. No, you stop saying that, John. Stop saying that. That's fighting talk. So, uh... Yeah. Uh, what I've done is I've been incensed with. Can you be incensed with rage, or is it fueled with rage? Can you be incensed with rage, or are you no? Just I incensed? think incensed is rage. So yeah, I don't think it doesn't make any sense to say incensed with rage. Well, but, yeah. I've been vomiting with rage <laughs> <laughs> by the claims of of uh, several people without mentioning any names. Uh huh. Oh no! Sorry, there's there's the name. <laughs> yep. That's the okay. that's the guy. Okay, yep. <clears throat> yeah, mm-hmm. that guy, and one or two others who say who say stuff about that subject as if as oh, no, I don't I don't, don't want to be rude, but um, some people have said some stuff that makes it sound as if we've got a good handle on some key things here, and there are some things that we don't have a key handle on. I think it's interesting enough that I would defer discussing it now. We'll talk about it next time. Okay. But it's a uh, it's, it's a big interest to anyone interested in like Mesozoic faunas and their de- and the depiction of Mesozoic landscapes because it's you know it's relevant to uh, the shape of landscapes and how many animals there were and all that kind of stuff. Stop yeah. saying there are too many. Stop saying there are too many dinosaurs, and stop saying there are too many sauropod dinosaurs in particular. Well, I think it depends on your reason for saying it, Darren. I yeah. say there are too many dinosaurs because I can't remember them all. I know, which is a good argument. And maybe but... we just need some sort of super genus level, which everyone can just refer to things as. And <laughs> then there's only like I don't know, six hundred of them I could probably deal with. Yeah, a lot. Of, a lot of the arguments are not good. Um, saying there are too many dinosaurs, 
I mean, yes. but but at the same time, the caveat is always that um, in saying that, you have to recognise that, of course, synonymization is going to occur. Of course, there are attacks that oversplit. But this idea, oh, not another dinosaur. There's too many. No, there aren't. <laughs> but, but yeah, I said I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. There mostly aren't for the fauna's concerned. <clears throat> okay. Um. Yeah. So, like, this is no, okay. So moving on to another thing, something that we could talk about at length, and we're not going to now. We haven't got time. This well, is a short. So we got twenty minutes. It needs more than twenty minutes of discussion, John. You just you uh, see. Okay. Um, <laughs> something that was an item for news from the world of news back in. 2018 when it was new okay but let's we can we can fold this into a larger discussion um the paper is by paul j weldon uh, it's published in biological journal of the linnaean society and it's the, the the paper is are we chemically aposematic revisiting uh, lsb leakey's hypothesis on human body odor when this came out i thought wow this is really weird and really interesting and uh, we spoke a couple of episodes back about um, the fact that there's this cottage industry whereby people, um, more than probably more than for any other group of organisms, certainly tetrapods, people come up with a model that might explain, a scenario that might explain some aspects of hominin or hominid or hominoid um, evolution, and they then say, this is why the hominins hominins, hominids, hominoids this is why they're like they are it's because they develop the use of fire and that mm -hmm. explains everything that explains why you're using a headset that explains why I'm applying Nivea lip balm it explains writing it explains the evolution of toothbrushes and the hunting of elephants Like it's quite common for people to come up with a scenario that they think dr has driven the whole of <clears throat> or nearly the whole of hominin hominin, hominid, blah, 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 evolution. So, Weldon is interested in Leakey's hypothesis on human body odour. And this is really, really interesting, right? So, Leakey said, as a um, side comment in um, one of his books, he said that like, <laughs> some people smell really bad. Some humans smell really bad. And humans are humans are in Africa are predated, according to him, are predated on by big cats and other you know, big predators way less than they air quotes should be relative to similar sized mammals ergo could it be that our disgusting stinkiness <laughs> is a and is adaptive is that 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 we have some like chemical aposematicism which makes us like unpalatable to predators like um yeah, like 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 big cats. Yeah. And right. And and first of all, you you might be thinking, uh, are you sure? <laughs> how do you how do you know that? What's your like? What is your, you know, sample? And how good are the stats on this? Do they? <laughs> right. Yeah. And it turns out is one anecdote where um, he. Uh, I, I'd, have to, I'd have to. It's literally years since I've read this, but he talks about a time where L Leaky and his students are in the field, and um, in a camping in tents as you do, and like a lion. <laughs> 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 oh, 
lion knocks over a load of crap in your office. No. Lion lion pokes its head into the tent, takes a sniff at one of the people and goes <laughs> and and walks away. And <laughs> Case closed. Closed. It's it's watertight, <laughs> and this explains why humans rule the world and have killed all the other animals. Oh, okay. Whiskey. Yep. Yeah, that's Makes what sense. it is. Makes sense. Makes sense. Pretty, pretty, pretty legit. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Weldon's Weldon's paper obviously goes into it in a bit more depth and talks about you know whether this stacks up and stuff. But um, like, like I say, without going through the paper, um, did I mention? Yeah, I, I did say enough about the paper so you can find it if you're interested. Are we chemically aposomatic? Basically, I don't think. Oh, it's a cat. <laughs> yeah, that's what that was. That what the crashing was. It was a lion knocked over a bunch of stuff. Small house yeah, lion. Small house lion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's really reliable this idea. And uh, <laughs> oh, really. Yeah, there's, and it's quite funny. Okay, I'm I'm probably putting too much emphasis on on what Leaky said, but the idea that like a cat should pop its head in the tin and immediately what scoff you up, immediately like kill and eat a person right there, is probably not accurate. Probably not how lions and predators generally behave. There's loads of cases where dangerous animals of all kinds have encounters with other animals of all kinds and don't kill them on sight. Even cases where you know lions walk into your tent leopards you wake up with a leopard sleeping next year and it hasn't killed you loads of cases of that kind of thing because predators aren't murder kill death machines 24 7 they aren't interested in predating things all the time they make mistakes they're curious we cover this in all yesterday's of course as you're about to say your cat squirrel analog yeah uh, exactly uh, anecdote, anecdote, sorry. <laughs> yeah um <laughs> <laughs> There's quite a few other problems I can think with this. A lot of humans aren't very stinky, right? Um, at all. Uh, especially if you're sort of... You're not wearing a lot of clothing and stuff. You, the smells just aren't really there. You know, I don't really notice people <laughs> It's not in tropical climates being really smelly. Yeah, um, yeah. And... Um, I've read some. There are some studies on um, uh, that that were interested in looking at. They were actually to do with whether people could detect menstruation in other people, and um, the, from the start, by 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 odor, mm. from the start, the study was like this study's kind of a waste of time because every single person that we, uh, you know, evaluated, smelt of smoke because <laughs> in you know. People yeah. throughout the world, they're sitting around campfires, like, probably every single evening. Mm. So, yeah, everyone smells slightly of smoke. So so any subtle cues that we might take, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult to make an argument. But, um, also, another thing that occurs to me, I haven't read the paper, I don't know where this sort of stuff is in there, but um, the you'd think that the humans that need the most protection are small ones. As kids, right? And kids oh, yeah. are in fact the least smelly. Yeah. Um, so it <clears> feels like smelliness is um, indicates sexual maturity, right? It's something that happens in puberty mainly, isn't it? Yeah. 
So yeah, and I, I just I think yeah. Well, Weldon also goes into like, well, hold on. If, okay, so let's let, let's test this. If we actually look at the number of people that have been killed by big cats, first of all, are humans killed less than you know, other animals of certain size? No. No, if people are killed less than other animals, it's because people have got big pointy sticks or guns, or people go around well, in bands. Well, or yeah, because, yeah, or because people have killed all the all the the, the big predators, and um, yeah, and the and the number of people killed. You know, there's no evidence that people are killed less, and there, there isn't evidence that, that that stinky people are less likely to have been killed. So uh, the reason the reason I'm particularly interested in it. Take this step. Take this back a few steps. Is because, like I say, it's another example of someone coming up with a scenario-driven hypothesis in hominin evolution. It's like thinking that you found one thing that's slightly strange. You know, it's certainly a non-standard uh, hypothesis um, that humans are like, you know, primate skunks, which is a yeah cool idea. Nice story, bro. But mm. um, I've got to say that you know, having read lots of leaky stuff and in loads of his books. I don't think he ever really went to town on that. He, he sort of mentioned it in passing as could be. Th- let's chuck this out there and see if this is a thing. Yeah. Um. So I was going to use it as a springboard to talk about um the you know some of the other non-standard ideas that have been out there in hominin evolution because um um. There's there's unusual ideas about the evolution of all kinds of animal groups. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm interested in this stuff enough to to cover it at Tezu fairly regularly, which is often not a good idea because it not only attracts the crazies but it also makes these ideas look more um, worthy of time than they are. But um, yeah, I'd say hominin evolution probably is more associated with this than anything else because why is it that Okay, if you think if you think of like the evolution of hominins, um, I think you know list 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 the, the few things that 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 are sort of well known about. I'm not gonna I'm not asking you to do it, but like imagine you're listing the things that are well known about hominin evolution. It's like okay, there's Australopithecines, there's Neanderthals and stuff. Uh, people made tools at some point. People in the broader sense of the term, and at some and and there's this idea of like people going through an aquatic phase I would say that's up there in sort of like the 10 well known things that everyone, nearly everyone knows about hominin evolution this proposal that hominins were associated with water and swimming so it's really interesting that a non-standard model which is uh, you know disliked almost across the board by everybody seriously you know involved in the study of hominids and hominins um is yet you know super popular and has been much written about and has been the subject of tv documentaries has been given um uh sort of a bit of promotion and backing by people like david attenborough desmond morris um yeah i find it really interesting that is it because it's a really sexy idea? Yeah, it's just, oh, what a cool idea. I would love it if we were, you know, went to like a sort of little swimming phase. And not, not me personally, because I think it's a bit dumb. But, um, <laughs> I, but yeah, I find it's an, it's an attractive and interesting idea. Is it that that's caused people to, um, yeah, make, make it known? Yeah, I think so. And um, I think... Uh, 
stories about causes in evolution are very attractive, right? People always want sort of a story of how something happened. And of course, the reality is that we'll probably never really know the causal mechanisms of why we evolved in a certain way or anything evolved in a certain way because it's all really complicated and infinitely um, embedded in a web of all sorts of things, right? Um, but it'd be really nice to have a a clear story that explains a bunch of um, our anatomy, wouldn't it? Uh, so I think that's... And something a bit counterintuitive and a bit strange, I th Sorry. Yeah, a bit counterintuitive, I think, and a bit strange. All the better, yeah. right? <laughs> I think, that, yeah, uh, part, part of the appeal of non-standard models, and we should say that the aquatic ape hypothesis, it was devised by uh, a lady called Elaine Morgan, who's no longer with us. She was an interesting person because she came from a background in, I think, in the world of television. She was like a... A producer or something because she she was behind the the making of documentaries that really pushed the aah <laughs> okay it was, it was for a long time known as the aquatic ape theory and then you had loads of people doing that it's not a theory so, so <laughs> it's not a theory it's no. hypothesis uh, loads of people say no it's so today it's generally known as the aah the aquatic ape hypothesis and um she published a book called the aquatic ape the aquatic ape I don't have any of the stuff to hand. It's all packed away. She sounds tied, right. Yeah. Yep. She tied in really interestingly with specifically the evolution of uh, women. And she also did some books on the evolution of, you know, she argued, and you could say quite rightly argued that um, the evolution of, of, of our species and us and our close relatives has very much been about like male behavior man, man the hunter as you know the, the human males yep. and she's saying that well what, what about women which are you know different in this respect blah 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 um she tied in um the female body and you know shape and stuff to um to her argument that it was it was evidence for aquatic specialization and um i think that to to take it back to what what you 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 were just saying um that i think part of the appeal of kind of la for so many people latching onto these models and um thinking that they might provide an answer is that it makes you a real smarty pants to be able to say, uh, but did you know that the reason for the reason that we cry is uh, whereas other you know other monkeys don't <laughs> is because we need to get rid of salt, and the reason for this nose is because because uh, <laughs> a lot of the arguments were really really strange. Like one in every I don't know I don't know let's say one in every two thousand people conceal their nostrils by um, like pushing their upper lip upwards, right? Mm. Now most of us can't do that. So the argument in Morgan's book is that, huh, some people can do it. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, okay. Yeah. So uh, a feature found across our species and advantageous to one out of every conservatively two thousand people is good enough to explain why it's evolved in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, or. Mm. <laughs> And she did that for loads of things. So, so I wonder if it's because there were these tidy things. She said, "Well, that explains that, and that explains that, and that explains that." It sort of seems to give you all the answers. The problem being, of course, you know, to 
that, that as I've implied, it's um, or stated even, it's not taken seriously by like anyone that works on this stuff legitimately, because um, when people have checked out all of these details, they're either not true. So it's not true, for example, that humans sweat way, sweat way more than all other primates. It's not true that humans have like a body fat mass that's you know, more body fat than like every single other primate it's not true this it's not true that it's not true that monkeys don't swim blah 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 yeah um sorry non-human monkeys using monkeys in the sense for all anthropoids which as we've covered before i think um yeah i mean it, like hypotheses like these i think are great because they're a great way to actually look at the intersection between a hypothesis and a whole heap of evidence, right? And does it match up? Of course, once it doesn't, you just got to abandon it. Um, which is what goes wrong with a lot of these things, that people don't, because they... It was... It had such promise, they thought, that they just start to make excuses in various areas, or you know, um, try to make it match evidence, rather than uh, accept that it just it just kind of doesn't. It's not a good explanation. But I like I do really like that people come up with these off the wall theories to start to start with. I think it's great. Um, I do. Yeah. Some of them turn out to be true, right? And that's um and that's really exciting. But <laughs> you do have to abandon when it's not working out. I think. Think of something else. <laughs> yeah. I, and I to we could say a lot more about this and and it we're not really doing it justice because you'd need to sit down with all the chat. ain't doing that whenever you talk about anything to do with uh, the AAH a man called Mark Verhagen pops up immediately and uh, starts challenging you he's, he's really argumentative about it mm. he's even done it on my Ford dinosaur stuff and the fact that um, the fact that I don't the fact that I reject the AAH uh, um, Verhagen managed to bring that into a comment he left on the, my my YouTube talk about Brian Ford's swimming dinosaurs. He says, "Well, Nature rejects the AAH, so how can <laughs> he's clearly got some big problem with the idea of animals being aquatic or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well done, dude. Good work mm. there. Um, I am also interested in the fact that the AAH is incorporated into like a, a number of other strange, well, non-standard. I shouldn't use this, sorry that word strange. Shouldn't say that. Um, a, a number of other non-standard models to do with like dinosaur evolution. There's a there's a proposal that that um, dinosaurs uh, could have evolved into humanoids via an uh, an aquatic ape style model. I won't talk about that now. And then there's the initial bipedalism model. Uh, promoted most vociferously by Francois de Sarre, uh, in which he, um, inspired by the guy who actually, oh, the very first person to ever talk about the idea that, that, that humans may have had an aquatic ancestry, a uh, German scientist, 1930s, forgotten his name, um, uh, Francois de Sarre built on that, and he said that could it be that not just that humans have an aquatic ancestry, but all mammals and all tetrapods and all vertebrates and that um, the, the human body shape is the most primitive one for all vertebrates oh yeah yeah like, yeah yeah, 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 this, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. so, so <laughs> little, little homunculus type water yeah. monkey creatures evolved first yeah. yeah this is a fantastic <laughs> one I love this one <laughs> the brain 
the brain obviously was just a float to start with, just like a you know, it's just like a round skull just full of like, filled in later, ga- yeah, gas. The yeah. brain, the brain came later, and these vertical things, and they evolved little dangling limbs, and then they took to land, and then those little like proto-humans that must have evolved, you know, back in the Cambrian, 500 million years ago, those are the direct ancestors of us, you know, and we've retained that primitive body shape, but repeatedly throughout history, um, these little marine homunculus type animals have um, like reverted to quadrupedality and we can see in wave after wave after wave of like you know mammals living and fossil that uh, from from homunculus type ancestors all of the quadrupedal mammals have evolved and they're kind of under they're in various stages of dehominization of like becoming less and less you know like like us and um, some of these like dehominized uh, tetrapods have like evolved a tail to like you know give them more balance and stuff and they've evolved claws and like big teeth and stuff and long jaws and uh, you know that's like where reptiles and stuff have come from and uh, some of them have taken have gone back to the water so from they've they've from a dehominized quadruped they've like gone back into the water and they've evolved fins and things and gills and fishes that's where fishes come from they're they're from the uh, hominized um, yeah, marine homunculus things. Mm. And uh, uh, Francois de Sar, he's an ichthyologist, French guy. Um, he uh, publishes a. This, this theory is called initial bipedalism. Sorry, this, this hypothesis is called initial bipedalism. And um, he used to publish a fairly regular, like, sort of desktop journal called Bipedia, which. Um, charted his thoughts and those of a few few colleagues on initial bipedalism and uh, it's one of the most popular things I've ever written about at Tetrapod Zoology like all things published pre I don't know pre 2018 it's you can only find it with its images if you find the article and go to Wayback Machine because everything's been stripped of images and ruined by the hosters of the old Tetrapod Zoology stuff um, but yeah, initial bipedalism, and um, yeah, and he, he's super into cryptozoology, so it overlaps with like you know yetis and bigfoots and things. They're all obviously real, and those are dehominized relatives of ours that are have evolved from animals that were like us, mm-hmm. uh, but they haven't evolved as they haven't become as modified as have say monkeys or lemurs or whatever. Those are the most modified of the primates because they've they've come so far away from the initial. Uh, bipedal homunculus thing so uh, <clears throat> fantastic yeah, yeah great but, but yeah. he got other people on board with his theory yeah, well there's like two or three other people that have commented on it mm. and um, his his uh, bipedia did include a few articles where people would say that they found like they found like a little skull of a hominid like the size of a walnut from the Devonian of Morocco or whatever and <laughs> and they're saying ah this is our you know proto-human gnome uh, the, the French really like to use the term gnome when they're talking about like little you know hominid type creatures and um, yeah so you'll have you'll have someone who without being rude someone who's like kind of a bit of a crank the sort of person that finds a stone and says I found like you know I found a little miniature dinosaur yeah. face and it's not it's just a stone those kinds of people they managed to publish articles in Bipedia because it's like no this fits in with your model and I was very interested to find 
Um, so Bernard Hooverman, who we've mentioned many times, I'm always talking about him, the, the so-called father of cryptozoology, he says in his most famous book, On the Track of Unknown Animals, he says some stuff which implies that he's a supporter of an unusual model for hominid evolution. It's, it's in the section where he's talking about Yeti footprints and what it, what it would mean for Yeti, the shape of Yeti feet. Um, in his uh, book that's on the Minnesota Iceman, which I've written about a lot, Tetrawadzology, covered it in my book, Hunting Monsters, as well. Um, uh, yeah, Hooverman's wrote this book, um, L'homme de Neanderthal est toujours vivant, Neanderthal Man is Alive Today, and it was translated into English a couple of years back as Neanderthal! Exclamation <laughs> mark. The, uh, the, the strange saga of the Minnesota Iceman, something like that. In that book, it, you know, I haven't seen the French original, um, but in the, in the translated version it's clear that he says he says that comes up he comes up with this whole model for um you know what he thinks neanderthals were like and about the their the drivers of their evolution but he starts talking about the fact he starts talking about dehumanization and initial bipedalism and says that he actually says i know that this book is already crazy enough and i'm already talking about all these weird things like, as if the survival of a neanderthal isn't you know isn't a big deal enough but here i'm also saying this i think that you know um, I forget exactly what he says. It's a long time since I read it and wrote about it, but I did cover it in my hmm. Tetrapod Zoology thing. So yeah, Hooverman's was a supporter of this thing, and um, so so it's interesting that cryptozoology, as if you know, repeating myself to an extent, but as if it's not problematic enough with these people supporting, you know, Hooverman supported the existence of I, I can't remember 160 or something giant animals living around the world awaiting discovery. As if that's not radical enough, he's also across the board supporting all these like really weird heterodox evolutionary models as well so uh yeah it's not yeah i think it, um i think it's sort of people are attracted to it's not really necessary right it's not necessary to believe in some weird evolutionary model to believe in a lot of the cryptids um but i think that the sorts of people that believe in cryptids as being real animals are attracted to unusual, bizarre ideas, right? They're attracted to these sorts of things, like, oh, everything you know is wrong sort of ideas, um, and therefore they get attracted by weirdo um, evolutionary hypotheses as well. I think that is true. Tick the box on that. But there's another box that needs to tick in, which is that for... I don't know. I don't know. Let's say... I'm going to say a third to one-half of all cryptids if you're going to accept them as real you also have to come up with an unusual model to explain their yeah, existence straight. yeah probably thinking of some of the some of the more straightforward ones but yeah there it's got to be some yeah yep. there are a lot of odd things out there all right yeah yeah we let's wrap it up there um <clears throat> we hope to uh, given that conditions are changed and also my work conditions are changed this is a whole nother story um we might be getting back into the habit of doing these fairly regularly ish because yep. john's super efficient and speedy when it comes to editing he loves editing it's hey really good at it. look <laughs> i get as many episodes out as we record <laughs> true true months and months down the line i suppose well, i know might. i know but uh, but it didn't really matter when that was released did it not? 
Hey, it, was, it was a nice break for people we released it a nice break yeah. they needed a break from all that podcasting but we would have oh, had no. a, we would have we would have had a no. six month break no matter what we did yeah whatever in terms of editing our listeners are like oh no not another podcast mm-hmm. please give me a break <laughs> from these two all they do is talk <laughs> yeah alright on that note um, right are you on the internet John I am. I'm the John Conway on Twitter. Um, I'm John Conway on Patreon. You can find me on Instagram, but I don't really use Instagram very much. I think I'm the John Conway on Instagram as well. Uh, yeah, and I have a website, johnconway.co. So, you? <clears throat> yes, I am. Uh, I mostly spend my time at tetchbodzoologytetzoo.com. I have a Patreon. Please support me. We need to talk. What, what the hell's going on with the with the Patreon for this for this thing with for this podcast? Yeah, we need to talk about that. We need to talk possibly about that. after the episode. Okay. Well, if you want to see what I'm up to in terms of like in progress artwork and stuff, work on my textbook and other projects. I'm at patreoncom forward slash tetzoo. Thank you very much to those who support me. I tweet at. tears roll down Leia's face as she watches the dashing pirate walk to the hydraulic platform Han looks one final time at his friends and then suddenly the platform drops Chewie howls Leia turns away in agony Lando winces in sorrow it makes a life changing impression on him, did you know that? Instantly, fiery liquid begins to pour down in a shower of sparks and fluid as great as any steel furnace. Holding Leia, Chewie half turns away from the site, giving 3PO a view of the procedure. What? What's going on? Turn round, Chewbacca. I can't see. Oh, they've encased him in carbonite. He should be quite well preserved. If he survived the freezing process, that is. Chewie is in no mood for technical discussions. He gives the droid an angry glance and bark at Tetsu. Have you watched The Mandalorian, by the way? No. No, of course you haven't. All right. um, Okay, let's end it there. Bye now. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Bye. A reading from The Monsters of Loch Ness, The History and the Mystery by Malcolm Robinson. Hello again. Whoever lays on the weather for Loch Ness didn't have Nessie Hunters in mind at the beginning of the year. This was the wettest and windiest January for more than 30 years. Normally we would expect some 80 or 90 hours of gale force winds in the months, but this year there were nearly 300 hours when the wind speed was above 35 knots. I can recall at least a dozen days when the lock was so rough that it was impossible for me to take my boat out and the low cloud and continuous heavy rain didn't help at all. But things were happening to brighten up the dreary winter months. An article in the colour supplement of the News of the World newspaper told us that the Loch Ness Monster may be no more than a figment of the imagination. Some crazy woman named Jenny Randalls, described as the Director of Investigation to the British UFO Research Association, believes that geological peculiarities in the Loch Ness area may affect people's minds and cause hallucinations. She rants on about fault lines combined with large bodies of water setting up electromagnetic fields which cause people to have blackouts and then imagine they've seen something. Well, I can tell Miss Randalls that I don't have blackouts and I know a lot of hard-headed Scots living in the area who don't suffer from hallucinations, but they have seen Nessie. 
to make the article even more hilarious, the writer quotes some of our old friends, Dick Rayner, Mrs. Carey, Ted Holliday, Tim Dinsdale, all ex-members of the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigations Bureau. I've always maintained these people have never really believed in Nessie, and some of the things they say in this article seem to bear me out. Dick Rayner said... Something about the monster is not real. I'm not sure you would feel anything if you touched it. Ted Holliday and Mrs. Carey claim they were in Carey's cottage when there were three loud bangs at the door and a great swirling black cloud came in and sent a beam of pure white light between Ted's eyes. Holiday later died of a brain hemorrhage. Tim Dinsdale talks of a haunted house and something he calls a black bogle, an apparition similar to Holiday's black cloud. And to cap that little lot, Miss Randall says that it's understandable that people might conclude that the monster is ghostly or demonic. Long-time readers will recall that Ted Holiday brought a retired priest up to the lock to carry out an exorcism of the demons swimming about in the murky depths. Now, the priest, Dr. Omen, says he noted mental deterioration amongst the monster hunters he met and attributed it to evil forces. I should point out here, Dr. Donald Omen only met the Bureau people mentioned earlier. Next piece of comedy comes from the magazine Newcastle.